One round down and three to go. On to the Division Series round, and in the American League, they are both truly divisional series. Teams in both series who know each other well and don't like each other one bit. Look out, folks. This is not a good idea. This is not a good idea. Oriano sprinted toward the dugout, and this is not good, folks. Let's get a preview of both the Yankees and the Rays, and the Astros and the A's. I'm Dan Schulman, and this is a swing and a belt. He's going to try the other way as Meadows goes back. He's on the track. He's at the wall. See ya! Another home run for LeMayu. This one the other way, and it's 2-0 Yankees. Michael Kay has been the TV voice of the Yankees for the past 19 seasons, so he has seen all kinds of great teams. He has called all kinds of home runs over the years, and he knows the Yankees as well as anybody. How you doing, Michael? Great, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing very well, enjoying the playoffs. I'm sure you are. We're both in a bit of a different role than we are during the regular season. I know you're still doing your talk show, doing a pre- and post-game show now for Yes, but uh, not getting a chance to call the games. I know as a play-by-play guy, when a team I'm covering is doing a game and I can't call it, it's a little weird for me. How does October work for you? It stinks, to tell you the truth. It's like um, I've been dating the girl the whole year, and she goes to the prom with somebody else, and I have to watch through the glass. It's awful. (laughs) That's a different analogy than I use. (laughs) I use the analogy that I get the whole pregnancy and somebody else gets the baby, but it's the same idea. It's exactly the same thing. Absolutely. How would you describe, and it was only 60 games, but I'm sure in many ways it felt like more for so many teams. How would you describe the regular season that the Yankees just had? In terms of their performance, I think it was um, underwhelming. They're certainly a better team than they perform. They should win more than 33 games. They're very streaky, Dan, and nobody really has an answer for it. They started off 16-6, and six, then they won 5-15, and 15, and then they ended up winning 10 in a row, and they finished the season 2-6. and six. So uh, if you had told me they, they were going to go into that Cleveland series and lose 2 in a row, I wouldn't be surprised. And If you say that they're going to win the World Series, I wouldn't be surprised because if they played Hmm. to the back of their baseball card, they're that good. But they really have not played consistently to the back of their baseball card. There was a time right after the first series between the Blue Jays and the Yankees when for I think it was just for a day when the Yankees were either tied or just a half game ahead of Baltimore. And all of a sudden, you know, the narrative became, hey, they got to start playing better or they might not even make the playoffs. Did you ever think that was a realistic possibility? You know what? If they continued to play that poorly, which I didn't think they would, but the thing that kept me from thinking that is that teams were chasing them, the Orioles and the, the Mariners, they're, they're really in teardowns. They, they would not have been able to catch them in all likelihood. And maybe that was part of the problem, Dan, where the Yankees almost felt like we're making the playoffs anyway. It's like an automatic bid in the NCAA. So uh, I don't know if they ever really put their foot on the accelerator Maybe they did against Cleveland. They played a lot better against Cleveland. Uh, They hit a lot better. But uh, there didn't seem to be much drive and emotion during the 60-game season. So tell me about the last day of the regular season. I'm calling the Blue Jays game. You're calling the Yankees game. And one of the two teams is going to be the five seed. One of the two teams is going to be the eight seed. And had the Blue Jays beaten Baltimore, then they would have been the five seed and the Yankees would have dropped to the eight seed. How much on the air during your last telecast of the season were you guys talking about that? And how big of a deal do you think it was to the ball club? Well, we, we talked about it a lot. I mean, the, the game didn't have much oomph to it at all. You knew they were going to make the playoffs. 
And if they dropped to eighth, then you were going to have what promised to be a real sexy electric matchup with the Tampa Bay Rays, which ends up happening in the second round. The Yankees didn't play well in that game, and the Marlins ended up winning. But then the the Blue Jays lost. So, yeah, but we covered that closely. That was that was a big talking point. All right. So now, as you said, you get the sexy electric uh, series coming up in the second round between the Yankees and the Rays. And they're so different in so many ways. But it's really become a rivalry. And, and part of that is that Tampa Bay's really, really good. And part of that is that there's a little bad blood between the two teams, if that's not overstating it at all. Uh, how do you look at this series going into it? Dan, it's not overstating it at all. I think they legitimately do not like each other. I know that Aaron Boone and Kevin Cash always got along. But when uh, Chapman went up and in on Brasso with a 101-mile-an-hour fastball, I believe it was on September 1st, then Cash came out and really was uh, very critical of the Yankees and questioned their coaching methods. And you could see that that affected Boone. He did not like that at all. I get it. They don't like being thrown up and in, but enough's enough. We were talking about a hundred mile an hour fastball over a young man's head. It just, it makes no sense. It's poor judgment, poor coaching. It's just poor teaching what they're doing and what they're allowing to do. The chirping from the dugout, somebody's got to be accountable. And the last thing I'll say on it is I got a whole damn stable full of guys that throw 98 miles an hour. Period. So I think that there's a legitimate dislike between the organizations. It's almost like a David and Goliath sort of thing where mm-hmm. the Yankees get everything. They have all the money. They can get the player that they want. Tampa Bay is not in that situation. But boy, are they spunky. And everybody's going to always remember, Dan, the fact that Chapman went up and in, which was inexcusable because it was up at the head. But that's the way the Rays have always pitched the Yankees. They feel that that's the way they get them out is to go up and in. And sometimes they really do miss up around the head. And that has angered the Yankees for a long time. So this has been simmering for a couple of years because the Yankees do not like how close to the head the Tampa Bay Ray pitchers uh, get. And, and Tampa has pitchers that throw 97, 98 miles an hour. So it gets scary at a time. It really does. So I think there's a real legitimate animosity between these two teams. So in your mind, the Chapman pitch to Brasso, was that in retaliation just for, as you said, a number of pitches that were a little too close to Yankee batters for the Yankees' liking? I would believe that it's been a buildup. I thought it was the wrong thing to do. I cannot believe that Major League Baseball has not enacted the suspension. Uh, it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. You know, he appealed, and they said, well, uh, because we cannot get the witnesses uh, together at the same time, uh, we're going to just push it to next year. Really? Have you heard of Zoom? You don't have to fly people <laughs> into New York. I mean, yeah. I thought that was a bad look for Major League Baseball, but I think – Chapman probably took things into his own hands, although he said that he didn't do it on purpose. Nobody could ever read minds, but you just have to obviously read the tea leaves. And and through the years, people have gone up and in, up and in on all the Yankee batters. One time, CC Sabathia uh, retaliated as well because they threw up and in, uh, actually up and behind the head of Austin Romine. So this has been going on for a while. And he hits him, and now CC just lost himself $500,000 as he's thrown out of the game. That was the perfect guy to throw out, Sucre the catcher, after they threw at Romine. And that's why CeCe's teammates love him, David. CeCe don't play. And that just might have been the tipping point. What did the Rays do well, or what did the Yankees not do well, to allow the Rays to take 8 out of 10 games from the Yankees during the regular season? The Rays make the plays. They're very, very good in the field. They run the bases very well. They get timely hitting. And their pitching seems like they have good game plans against the Yankees. The Yankees were very sloppy this year. 
They led the major leagues in errors. They're weak up the middle defensively, except for DJ LeMayu. There's certainly things that the Yankees have to worry about. And you don't want to use this as an excuse because everybody dealt with this. They had a lot of injuries at a lot of key spots. They lost uh, Judge for a long time. They lost Stanton for a long time. They even lost Glaber Torres for about a 10-day IL. So uh, I think they never really got going. They have all their players now except for um, you know Paxton and Tommy Canely. But the, they, they could deal with that. But their whole offense, 1-9, to nine, is about as complete as it's been all year. All right, here comes the easiest question of the interview. It's a, it's a 3-0 fastball right down the middle. How much did Garrett Cole mean to the Yankees this year? I think he's meant everything, but I don't think he meant that much during the regular season. I think he meant the most for that first game against the Indians. And a called strike three. That's 13 for Garrett Cole tonight. It's almost, Dan, as if he's too good to be true. And I think that this is the legitimate guy. He, he's a baseball nerd. He loves it. He, he wants to talk about it. He'll, he'll break it down to the nth degree. Every single pitch he throws in a game. I mean, he's a student of the game, not just a thrower out there. And I think that that has helped the Yankees uh, overall and their pitchers watch him and follow him. But uh, they didn't get him for the, the regular season, Dan. They got him right. for these games. They got him for the game ones and maybe the game fives. That's what they got him for. So he's going to pay off. Obviously, he already did against the Indians. And now he, we'll see how he does in game one against the Rays. How much confidence do you think Yankee fans have, Michael, in Tanaka, Hap, and Garcia in whatever order they pitch for, say, games two, three, four? Dan, I'm going to let you in on a little secret because I do a four-hour radio show every day. The Yankee fans have no confidence in anyone. It's amazing. <laughs> I mean, they, they want a, a Hall of Famer at every position, and they yeah. essentially get that. But, uh, yeah, they didn't even have confidence in Cole because there was a, a middle of the season where he didn't pitch that well, and then they switched catchers. And uh, now he, he's, uh, he's got a catcher that he's more comfortable with than Gary Sanchez and Kyle Higashioka. And he's been great pitching to about a one ERA with Higashioka behind the plate. I think they trust him now. But uh, my biggest worry, forget about the fans, my biggest worry with this team, Dan, you've watched them for years. This has always been a team that the strength has been their bullpen has been the best bullpen that you've ever seen. Their bullpen is so flawed right now. The loss of Kane Lee was underplayed. He was a huge part of that bullpen. And then they've lost complete confidence in Adovino, where they didn't even use him in that five-hour game in Game 2 against the Indians. They used Loisega, who I, I don't know if he's really ready to do this yet because he's still a young kid. They have two relievers, two-and-a-half relievers that they really trust, Chapman, Britton, and Green when he's on, although Green has had his moments as well. Everybody else is a real flip of the coin, so hmm. you're almost forcing the starters to give you seven innings, and the only one that you could really sign up for that and feel comfortable with would be Cole. Everybody else, it's kind of a, a crapshoot. And with no off days, you really need depth. And, and obviously, yep. I saw the Rays a lot during the season with the Blue Jays, and I just did the playoff series as well on ESPN Radio. Like, as you know, Tampa Bay's got unbelievable depth on that pitching staff. They can bring six, seven, eight guys out of the bullpen that Kevin Cash has a lot of confidence in. It feels like a real advantage for the Rays that there are no off days in the series. Absolutely, and I think it's a real disadvantage for the Yankees because they're going to have to pick and choose when they're going to use Chapman and when they're going to use Britton because I guess the most you could push them is three games in a row. I don't think that Aaron Boone would ever use them four days in a row. So it's going to be a tough to maneuver it. And I think it's going to even get tougher uh, if the Yankees advance to the ALCS because that's seven games in a row. Mm -hmm. And uh, even their best relievers, the two-and-a-half guys that I mentioned, you, you're going to have to use them judiciously because you can't use them every single day. And that takes away one of the longtime Yankee advantages, although I'm not quite sure it's an advantage this year. 
as weird as it is, because Tampa Bay is the number one seed, but you talked about David and Goliath, as weird as it is, is there more pressure on the Yankees to win this series? I think so because of the payroll aspect of it. And um, when the Yankees just play in spring training in, in the uh, halcyon days of George Steinbrenner, they had to beat the Tampa Bay Rays and they had to beat the New York Mets, even in spring training. So it meant a lot. I don't know if it's been passed down to the kids, but I do I, I do know that, you know, they live down there. The whole Steinbrenner family lives down there. The last thing they want to do is have to hear that the, the Rays knock the Yankees out of the playoffs. So I think the Yankees probably have more pressure. But I think that for some reason, and I'm not quite sure why, the Rays have put pressure on themselves. You know, they've kind of poked the bear mm-hmm. ever since that Chapman situation where they printed up T-shirts and said the squad and the, the 98ers. Why? Why do you have to do that? It's better to be the underdog than the overdog. And I think that they've given the Yankees bulletin board fodder as if you really need it in a situation like this. So in addition to doing all the Yankee games and doing a a radio talk show five days a week for several hours, even on the days that he does the games, as if Michael weren't busy enough, Michael, like me, is an old guy with young kids. He's got two young kids. I've got one young kid, and we talk about it a little bit. Do you get your sleep? How's your energy? And and how is it having a couple of little ones when uh, you're in your mid to late 50s? Well, my wife is on Instagram, right? So it, it answers the question perfectly. So I'm, you know, I'm keeping score of the game as I'm watching because I do the pre and post game out of my house. And my daughter, who's seven years old, is climbing. As I'm watching the game and I've got my scorebook in my hand and a pen, she's sitting on my shoulders. And my wife said, you know, eight months of work during the uh, coronavirus. It's just, it's amazing because they don't know your work and they want to play and mm-hmm. they come in the office and stuff like that. It's, it's a nice distraction for me, but I might miss a big play or so. I mean, let's, let's be honest, but it's fun. I'm 59. I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, so I'll probably not see them when they're 50, but I hope I see them for quite a while. Absolutely. Uh, you're taking care of yourself like I'm trying to do as well, and it's a blessing. And I know we're both enjoying it as much as we can. I appreciate you doing this, Michael. I enjoyed our text exchanges during Blue Jay Yankee games as we traded information and on many matters during the games. And uh, hopefully next year when our two teams play, we'll be uh, actually be in a ballpark and be able to see each other in person. You know, I love the information, Dan, but I love the snarkiness that we had, too. I thought that was big. <laughs> Don't say that. My mother might be listening. You're going to get me in trouble if you call me snarky. <laughs> okay. Have one more kid so we could be even. Then we'll really be even. I will get back to you on that. You'll be you'll be the second or third person I text if that happens. <laughs> okay, great. Be well. <laughs> Thanks. Strike out. Hendricks trying to dig deep. Here's his 2-2. Mazzara takes strike three called. And a win, a long time coming for the A's franchise. Bob Melvin and his team earned this one. What a win today and what a series win for the Oakland Athletics. Vince Catronio has been a baseball announcer for 30 years and has been part of the Oakland A's radio broadcast team as one of their play-by-play announcers for the past 15 years. So he's been there for a lot of good baseball. But not a lot of success in the playoffs Until now, with the A's eliminating the White Sox to move on to the division series against the Astros. Happy October, Vince. How are you doing? Well, it is happy for the first time in a while, for sure, Dan. Thanks for having me. It's been since uh, 2006 that the A's have been able to advance, and they sure hope that continues. Yeah, I know. So many elimination games that they haven't been able to win, in spite of the fact that they've been such a good team. How big was this? For everybody, for the 28 guys on the roster, for Bob Melvin and the coaches, for the fan base, how big was this to win this game and advance on to the next round? Because of the history that's been there for the athletics. And like you said, I mean, 97 wins back-to-back years in 18 and 19 just to be bounced in the first round in one game. And then with this series, because of the change this year and the things that Major League Baseball wanted to do to create 
you know, more excitement at this time of the year. More than half the teams get to the postseason. And the A's won the West, but yet they still had to have a three-game series instead of a five-game series. They had all three games at home, which helped. But all three games were at noon local time, which forced COVID testing about 6.30 in the morning. And, uh, you know, that's kind of what they were dealing with. They kind of felt like uh, they were not getting the proper respect for a team that's had success. But they went out there and they got the job done. They played comeback baseball on Thursday to win that final game. And that was that was a big deal because it had not happened, you know, since 2006, although there have been numerous opportunities. And it's a club that's very close. Bob Melvin is a tremendous communicator, well-liked in that clubhouse. And it really all came together. Do they use that? no respect thing do they have a bit of a chip on their shoulder like I know the Tampa Bay Rays feel a little bit of that as well and they try to use that to their advantage is that something that the A's often feel when teams like the Yankees or Red Sox or whomever get more attention than they do well I think if you're on the west coast like the A's are you always feel that way because your team doesn't get a lot of the national spotlight they're rarely a national game rarely a Sunday night game and they've got some outstanding players uh, People that follow the A's from afar certainly are aware of Matt Olson and Matt Chapman. You know, Marcus Simeon doing what he did last year, Ramon Laureano, a tremendous defender in the outfield, and still some young stars coming, like Sean Murphy behind the plate, Jesus Lazardo on the mound. So they do feel like, don't forget about us, so to speak, but I think it's more so for them because it's the American League West and because they're playing the Astros, there's that other underlying you know, thing that's there from all the conversation during the offseason. And the A's felt like, as did many teams, that maybe there were things that happened that affected where they should have been in the postseason the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. And the A's are certainly not alone in feeling that way. And I, I want to explore that a little bit more a little later on. But take me back to game three against the White Sox. You're calling it for listeners. I'm calling it at the same time for ESPN Radio and the White Sox come out, and I mean, they're hitting bullets all over the place. They're hitting the ball hard. Luis Robert hits a 487-foot home run. There are line drive singles, line drive doubles. It's 3 to nothing White Sox, and it looks like, you know, it's maybe in a bat or two from really getting away from the A's. Now, you know how good the team is. You know how good the bullpen is for Oakland. But what was going through your mind in the early going when the White Sox were taking that lead? The A's needed to find a big hit. And they had the bases loaded in the third. They came away empty. And that kind of added to the frustration. And you're right. I mean, the White Sox are a tremendously gifted offensive team. And they they appear to be that way moving forward for a few years. They've got some great young stars. And the A's feel like, and it's kind of funny because as the A's were finishing the regular season, Dust Baker referred to, to Sean Murphy as Johnny Bench. Why are we pitching to this guy like he's Johnny Bench? And in fact, the A's rookie catcher, probably was the best hitter for the A's down the stretch. And his home run, which didn't give the A's the lead, but they awakened, they turned a 3-0 deficit into a 3-2 deficit. For Sean Murphy, who walked his first time up today. That one is hit well to left field. Sean Murphy can watch it. And we got a brand new ball game. One swing has changed the feel of this game big time. A really, really impressive young player. And then, like you said, the bullpen, primarily right-handers outside of Diekman, got the job done and held down that explosive White Sox offense. And while the A's offense, you know, on numbers is not glamorous, you know, low batting average, low runners in scoring position, their MO continues to be, Dan, that they could grind out at bats. And they really made their young pitchers work, forced them to come into the strike zone, which they had difficulty doing. And that turned a, you know, into a four-run inning, and the A's had the lead. And then it was given right back with a tie with a base hit. 
And then they got the key base hit by Chad Pinder, who missed the good portion of the last part of the season with a hamstring injury when he drove into two runs and the A's bullpen locked it down the rest of the way. Although there were some harrowing moments along the way. And you know, Liam Hendricks had thrown almost 50 pitches the day before. Nobody knew if he was going to be available. And his slowest fastball on Thursday was 97.5. And he was dotting it around 98, 99 consistently. And that really nailed it down. And he, he has really been their MVP most of, much of the year. Got them to the point where they are now, you know, getting a chance to go down to Southern California and play the Astros. Yeah, it was really fun for us as we were doing the game, trying to guess along with Bob Melvin, okay, who's available, Kendrick's pitch, how much can they ask of him? And even before, guys you know well, but not household names. J.B. Wendelkin, Lou Trevino got some big outs. Jake Diekman came in and got some big outs. And then maybe the biggest at bat of the game, or one of them, Jose Abreu is at the plate. And Joaquin Soria is on the mound, and he gets a double play ball to get out of the eighth inning. I don't know how it gets any bigger than that, especially with how good of a hitter Abreu is. Joaquin Soria has seen every imaginable situation on the mound in all the years he's been in the big leagues. He's the A's, you know, elder statesman down there, if you will. He's got 200-plus saves in his back pocket from all the experience from years gone by, including pitching for the White Sox. And earlier in the year, in September, there was a key at bat that he had against Mike Trout. And it was going back and forth, a lot of foul balls on fastballs with men on base, and then he froze him with a curveball. And Mike had this wry smile walking back to the dugout like, yeah, you really got me. And the curveballs would save them again against Abreu on Thursday. That's the pitch that he grounded into the double play. And this is the same guy that earlier in the game, because he had lost 25 pounds going into the season, was able to, to leg out a play, extended inning for them. It was an E6 on Simeon, but I think he surprised Marcus with his the way that he moved up the line. And in this particular case, the curveball got him. And you're right, that experience really paid off for Oakland. 2-2 pitch on the way. Abreu bounces it past the pitcher. Simeon, that's one. Lestella, that's two. It's a double play. The A's turn it. And Joaquin Soria, one of the biggest pitches he's made in his long big league career. Do you think the A's cared whether or not it's the Astros in the next round, whether or not Houston won or lost their first round series? I don't think they're disappointed. To play the Astros, <laughs> I think they they were willing to play anybody. You know, and keep in mind, Dan, on the last day of the season, the A's felt at that point it was going to be, you know, eighty percent that they were playing the Astros in the opening round, and all of a sudden, with everything was happening, the White Sox were limping down the stretch. Cleveland was getting hot. Minnesota was hanging on, and as the A's left the Coliseum, instead of playing the White Sox in a three-six, it was the A's in the two-seed, and the White Sox in the seven. So that that was a bit of a surprise for them. But yes. I think the A's are going to relish the opportunity to maybe be the team that can limit the Astros for all the things we've discussed about the way their organization has been portrayed for the past couple of three years. And I think the A's, who did well against them during the regular season, won the, won the season series and won the West, they want more of that starting on Monday. Yeah, and, and everybody who's neutral, well, there won't be anybody neutral here. You're either an Astros fan or you're rooting for the A's in this one. <laughs> everybody who's neutral across the country, I think, is going to be voting for the Oakland A's. So if the A's want a little bit more attention, I think they're picking up a lot of fans for this series from folks who are just baseball fans and want to see the Astros lose. I would agree with that, and, and it will open up an opportunity for people across the country to, to see what the A's have to offer. You know, guys like Chris Bassett, who's a lunch pail type pitcher from Toledo, Ohio, has emerged as the A's ace. And they'll get a chance, hopefully, to see Jesus Lazardo, who's a, a talented 23-year-old now, has work to do, but there's a lot to like about his work. And then the other players we talked about, you know, Matt Olson, Gold Glove at first base. Tommy LaStella 
changed the tenor of the A's when he was acquired. A very stealthy, under-the-radar move by Billy Bean and David Forst. And you know his ability to get on base and create things has really just kind of changed the M.O. of the A's offense. They pay attention to his at-bats, a guy that rarely strikes out. This was a team that was last in the league in strikeouts when he joined the team. And then they moved to the middle of the pack and were among the best and fewest strikeouts in September. And I am of the belief that there was a La Stella effect to that. And then, you know, losing Matt Chapman and overcoming that with getting some big hits from guys like Jake Lamb and now Chad Pinder healthy enough to play. I think it's going to be a fun series for people that aren't associated or know much about the A's to see what they can bring to the table. You know, it's funny. Next time you see Buck Martinez, next time we're all in the same place, whenever that may be, you could ask him. I campaigned openly, like for days, for the Blue Jays to go get Tommy Listella from the Angels. You know, to bring a professional hitter, a grown up into the room, runner a third, less than two out. You want to get a guy home, that's your guy. Deep at bats, foul balls, all the things you said. It's not glamorous, but those are the kinds of guys on winning teams who can put them over the hump and really help them. And I'm sure he's had a really good effect on some of the younger players that the A's have this year. There's no question, Dan. It just, again, his approach, and and even yesterday, a, a key situation that led to Pinder's two-run single was the catcher's interference. He has 15 of those in his <laughs> career. That's that's a pretty high number. And if you're the White Sox, you have to be acutely aware of that, and the catcher has to know not to reach for the ball to try to steal the strike because of the way that Tommy approaches his swing, that it allows him sometimes to have that work in his favor. And that kept the inning alive for the A's. It set the stage for Pinder. Those are the kind of small winning things that you love about a guy like Lestella. Bob Melvin has been the A's manager for 10 years. In my mind, he is unquestionably one of the best managers in baseball. And I think within the sport, he is definitely thought of that way. But he could walk down the street in any city in baseball, with the exception maybe of Oakland and San Francisco possibly, and not be recognized. He's just a low-profile, low-key guy. What makes him, in your mind, as good a manager as he is? There isn't a player that doesn't walk into the clubhouse and know what his role is. No player wants to walk into the clubhouse and be surprised when they see the lineup card for whatever reason, whether you're starting or not starting or batting in a certain spot and having not known that in advance. Uh, he is a player's manager for sure and knows how to operate the bullpen. He operates within the scheme of what the A's are, which is a matchup type team. The players know that. They buy into that. He helps them buy into that. And they really all pull from the same side of the rope. And yet he does allow them to have some fun. Their post-game shenanigans are legendary. <laughs> I've seen them firsthand. Not, not this year, of course, because of COVID. But I just see the way these guys bond after victories and, and why this team is so close. Melvin allows them to uh, be themselves in their own skin, but they also know that he's in charge. And they respect him because he tells them in advance of what's happening in their daily routines. So a player walks to that clubhouse that particular day. He's already of the mindset that he knows what he has to get done to give the A's their best chance to win. He is one of the best, no doubt about it. So the A's will take on the Astros in Los Angeles in the division series. What's your situation? Are you guys allowed to go down into the bubble, so to speak, and broadcast from Dodger Stadium or do it back from Oakland? We'll be doing it from Oakland. Uh, we were not allowed to go into the bubble. If we wanted to travel, we would have to do that on our own and really kind of stay away from the team and still stay in that tier three, not allowed on the field, not allowed in the clubhouse, still doing interviews you know, through Zoom and whatnot. So at least for this opening round and or this next round, and we're going to stay at the Coliseum myself and Ken Korak and Ray Fossey. And then we'll see after that. M maybe there'll be some travel. You know how difficult it is to do the game off the monitor. It's just not the same of using your own eyes on the field. I think the fans have been understanding of that all year, and uh, at least for this next round, that's the way it's going to be. 
All right. Well, enjoy it. Uh, October is always fun, especially when you're getting a chance to call games for your home team and for the A's the first time advancing since 2006. Stay safe. Thanks for joining me and enjoy uh, the run as long as it lasts, Vince. Thank you, Dan. Well, I don't know about you, but I think both of these series have a chance to be outstanding. Good teams, bad blood, it's got all the ingredients to be a very memorable week of baseball, especially with the teams playing five games in a row. These series both have a chance to be great. We look forward to keeping you up on the baseball playoffs from time to time over the next few weeks, and we'll hope you join us whenever you can. The producer of A Swing and a Belt is Christian Ryan. I'm Dan Schulman. Thanks for listening.